Morning everyone. So good to be here and to see you and uh, everyone on Zoom watching or Facebook rather. Good morning. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be able to meet with you here in God's house and open his word and to study it with you. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Luke 7, please. What I'd like to do is I'd just like to reread the passage that David read for us earlier on today. So Luke chapter 7, and we'll reread verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering to him, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say, teacher, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she, was, she has not ceased to, to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who was forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Lord, I just want to ask that you would bless this into our hearts. Help us to hear your voice speaking clearly this morning. Speak to all of us, Father. And I pray that we'll see... Uh, uh, have an understanding, not just this passage, but have uh, come to recognition of the significance of it, Father. We thank you in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in this story, we read that Jesus has been invited to the home of a Pharisee, a Pharisee who, uh, whose name later we're told is Simon. Uh, now it's useful to establish right from the beginning, from now, what this story isn't. It's not that story that's told by the other three gospel writers, as Matthew and Mark and John. So in Matthew 26, in Mark uh, chapter 14, John 12, they recount an event of an unnamed woman uh, who took some very expensive ointment and poured it on Jesus' head to anoint him. And that happened in a town called Bethany in Judea, which is in the south. Uh, so Matthew and Mark tell it exactly that way, an unnamed woman. And you recall that in those stories, and that's one story told by the three of them, the disciples were indignant, and they questioned, why does this woman waste 
this ointment, which could have been sold and you know, the money used to uh, help the poor instead. And in that story, Jesus answered that she was preparing him for his upcoming burial and death. So John tells it slightly differently, that same story. He, 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 he tells it like this. He said, Jesus is also in Bethany at, at where Lazarus was. He doesn't specifically say that he and the disciples and Lazarus are in, a, in Simon the leper's house. But in John's account, that woman is named Mary. This is not Mary Magdalene. It's probably one of the most underappreciated and <laughs> misunderstood people in the, uh, women in the New Testament. This is Mary that John's talking about. Mary is the one that takes that ointment and anoints uh, Jesus' head. But he says, this Mary, the sister of Martha, anoints his feet. So he talks about the feet. So Matthew, Mark, and John focus on different parts of Jesus' body where this ointment has been applied. But in all three accounts in that story, the same reactions are there. The disciples are indignant. They, and then Jesus' response is the same. The point is the same. He doesn't tell a parable in that story, whereas he does in this one here. We see in those accounts that it's Mary, and she's now been, uh, that announced, uh, anoints Jesus, and she's, she's anointed his head and his feet. Here in this story here, Jesus is in Galilee, in a town probably called, uh, in a town called Nain. We see that in, in verse um, 11 of chapter 7, a little bit before our passage here. Now, this is in the north, so it's a different, com- completely different situation. And if you look at a map of ancient Palestine, you'll see that the, from a bird's eye view, where Nain is up in the north and, and where uh, uh, Bethany is, it's like from here to, say, Wrexham. So it's not the same story. So different stories, different hosts, different people, different places, different lessons. So this is a unique account that Luke is giving to us here. It's a story, so we'll just go through it as a story, okay, as a whole. So if you look at verse 36, it says, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him at his home, and Jesus went. Now this is not the only time that Jesus has been at the house of a Pharisee for a meal. You'll see it again if you kept reading in Luke 11 and Luke 14. In the lead-up to this bit that we have just read, though, early in the chapter, we know that he was in Capernaum, he went to Nain. So he's up in the north. He's traveling around. He's preaching. He's ministering to people. He's healing people. That's exactly what he's doing there. He's like a traveling minister at this time in that north area, northern area. And then in verse 30 of chapter 7, we see that the Pharisees, up here in the north where Jesus is, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves. That's in contrast to the riffraff, the sinners, the people, the general people who declared God as just. So already you can see that where Jesus is, in the north, and the Pharisees' attitude to him, not very hostile. It's not very accommodating. It's actually quite hostile. And so... Here, it's important to note this because these Pharisees, it's important to understand that the Pharisees were an elite sect of, uh, of the Jewish religion, sort of the, the upper crust of society, and they distanced themselves from everyone else. They sort of call them the riffraff, the sinners. They themselves, the Pharisees, were grossly self-righteous. You know, they were very fastidious in observing the law of Moses. And what they did is they, they'd create additional laws 
so that they wouldn't break the original laws of Moses. They would go to every length to make sure that they appeared to be so righteous and so holy. That is the Pharisee, and they hated Jesus. It's well known. They see him as, a, as an outlaw, as some kind of pariah. So throughout the Gospels, you'll see that the Pharisees are constantly trying to find a way to mount a case against Jesus, to try and eliminate him. Obviously, they succeed in the end, but not in God's plans. Now, among the reasons why they hated him was because Jesus drew crowds. He, wherever he went, people wanted to see him. No matter whether the people understood his messages or actually came to him to place faith in him, they still wanted to see this miracle maker. That made them jealous. No one paid attention to the Pharisees. No one followed them about. But this man turns up and everyone follows him. They also hated Jesus because he quite clearly pointed out their hypocrisy. He was always quick to tell them, you know, how they were making life hard for everyone else by their, uh, uh, the way that they observed God's laws. They put burdens on people. And so, and inside, in their hearts, Jesus describes them as whitewashed. They, they just have nothing in there. So they have a disdain for Jesus, and it was well-known, it was intense. So when we see the Lord in this passage in the house of a Pharisee, let's just not be so quick to assume that it was just for a quick chat, or, or there was a pure motive in Simon's heart there. This is the same kind of person that the Apostle Paul was. He was Saul, the persecutor of Christians. He was a Pharisee himself. And you might be saying, you know, there's an exception. Look at Nicodemus in John 3, who, a Pharisee, was a sympathizer. He wouldn't invite Jesus to his home. How did he meet Jesus? He had a burning theological question one night, and he came in the night so that no one would see him in order to approach Jesus with his question. So a sympathizer, I don't think Simon was. So here, Jesus has been invited to the home of this Pharisee. He isn't alone because we read that there are others at the table, so it's most likely he's got his other Pharisee friends with him. At best, he's there inviting Jesus because he wants to keep up appearances. At worst, it's probably part of that continuous effort to find something against Jesus and discredit him there and then. So that's the sort of context that we find ourselves now, the practice of inviting a speaker or a teacher into your home in that time it was not uncommon. It was, uh, especially if you were someone of society, like these Pharisees, a religious leader. So Jesus would have been preaching and teaching in that area. The word would have got around that uh, there was a preacher in town. And it's quite common to invite them to your house, kind of like how you would invite maybe the preacher to come and have Sunday lunch after the sermon, that type of, that type of thing. The only difference, though, is that it was also normal that the host would leave his gates open so that folks in the town can also come and stand around and listen to see what was you know, being discussed, hear a bit of conversation and debate. There was no ent entertainment in those days, no radio, no telly. That was some kind of you know, uh, uh, pastime. And that's the sort of scenario that we have here. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, um, every few years my family would visit Ghana. I didn't grow up there, but we'd visit Ghana. And uh, I remember, you know, sort of mid-80s, um, we went to my grandparents' house, and it's a bungalow. And she was one of the, my, my grandma was one of the first people in that neighborhood to actually have a TV, a color TV. And I remember it, it, would, it would be in the lounge, and the windows would be open, 
and right outside the window was a veranda, and everyone from the neighborhood would come and fill that veranda and, and watch to see what's going on, you know, and just pass time. That's the sort of scenario that we have going on right here. So it's no surprise then that we read that there's a woman, this woman shows up when she learns that Jesus was in her town at Simon's house, at this Pharisee's house. What's interesting, though, is we're told that when she learns that Jesus is in this town, she doesn't just pick up and go out of curiosity. She does something very specific. She takes something very specific with her. She purposely brings an alabaster jar of perfume. So there's something that she wanted to achieve by taking this with her, which we'll talk about in a moment. But for now, you know, this perfume, this ointment that we read about, it's not some cheap supermarket copy that smells exactly like the leading brand. You know, the, the cost of this kind of thing, we read it elsewhere in the Gospels, is the equivalent of a year's wages. That's per pound. So it's very costly, very expensive. And she's taken this thing with her. We're talking about a fragrance that probably has made of some Indian and Arabian root in, a, in a, an Egyptian type of marble-like vial. And that's what she's got, an export product that she's taken with her. So this woman of the city is a term that we probably liken to, you know, lady of the night. She's introduced to us as a sinner. And not just spiritually, but in the eyes of those around her, she's notoriously a lowlife. You know, something, whatever she does, her reputation goes before her. And she's known as that. She's notorious, and, but she's probably had a measure of success. She can afford to have something as dear as what she's brought with her. So she was at least good at saving whatever she did. And if you connect the dots, it's understandable that, uh, you know, might take a common view that she was a prostitute because she clearly made enough to afford such a thing. Women did have perfume in those days, of course, but this caliber of ointment here, you'd be inclined to think that she can only afford it due to her trade. Uh, the text doesn't name her sin, but whatever it is, like we said, it is, she's notoriously known for it. So back then, we've seen then now, it's okay for people to gather around the perimeter of wherever these, you know, the host and his guests are dining and just to listen in on the conversation and, you know, passively take part in, uh, in that debate. So it's no surprise she's there. But with that kind of reputation that she has, she might have been lurking in the background, you know, maybe with her head covering, as was quite common for a woman anyways. But the shocking thing here is that she would dare approach the Lord in public. The outrage is that she would even minister to him in such a way that lays open her soul, bears her emotions. But she's completely oblivious to any discomfort or shock that's going on around her. In verse 38, let's have a look at that. Notice how she approaches Jesus. She stands behind him. Now the guests at the table would have been lying uh, uh, on, on a flat surface, maybe propped up with cushions, hand on the head and eating, but their feet would have been far behind them. So you kind of have like, a, uh, like the spokes of a bicycle, heads inward, feet far away. That's because feet were a big thing, dirty, you know, mucky roads. They don't have the sanitation that we have today. Hygiene was not, feet, foot hygiene and protection is not what we have today, of course. So that's why it was very customary 
to have your feet washed when you entered someone's house or to wash them yourself when you entered someone's house. You go back all the way to Genesis to see how this custom is so important and is important in the day of Jesus as well. So she comes up behind him. She washes his feet with the only water she has, tears. So she's already emotional. She, she doesn't start crying. She's already come to him emotional, tears. And I like the ESV's rendering of this sentence here because it says, she began to wet his feet. And the Greek word means just like that, a constant pouring, like turning the tap on. That's the immensity of the emotion that she comes with. And she dries his dirt-caked feet, not with a garment that she's brought with her or a towel that she's brought with her. She's got none of that. Her hair, which means that she's loosened her hair. And at that time, a woman should wear her hair up, tied up. To, to, to loosen it and to do what she did suggests looseness of the person. But she was oblivious to that. She kissed his feet in verse 38, we're told. But then in verse 45, when Jesus is talking to Simon, he says that she hasn't stopped kissing his feet since the moment he got there. So it's a continuous thing. Throughout this entire dialogue, she is at his feet, doing what she's doing, ministering him in that way, kissing his feet. And her actions don't stop there. That perfume that she brought that expensive, costly export that she has brought, worth a man's whole year's wages, it comes out and she's pouring it on his feet, mixed with her tears as she embalms Jesus' feet with it. Everything about this woman and what she has done here is culturally offensive. Everything. From stepping out of the background in someone else's home to approaching the guest, to publicly letting her hair down, to, to kissing his feet... And notice she doesn't say a word to Jesus. We're not even told here that she even looks at him. She, she, she's standing behind him. So if, even if she came with the intention of ministering this perfume, this ointment to his head, she didn't get to or she stopped at his feet and just ministered there. In verse 39, now this is where we first learn of the Pharisee's name, Simon. And we get an insight into his thinking here. And he says... If, if this man were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. So what are we seeing here? Clearly, Simon thinks Jesus is not an authentic prophet, which is his intention. We've talked about Pharisees who hated Jesus. He doesn't think he's an authentic prophet, because if he was, he would have known what everyone else in this town knows about this woman, that she's a sinner. If he'd have known that, he would distance himself and not allow her to do what she was doing. He would be like the Pharisee who keeps himself separate from a sinner. That's what he's passing judgment on, on Jesus. That's what he's saying. And so after seeing how this woman gives herself in this lavishly out, you know, emotional outpouring, do you know, Simon could have concluded that Jesus is connected to this woman in some illicit way. He could have. But I find it interesting that he puts it down to ignorance. He just doesn't know. He's not a real prophet. Do you know this is interesting here? This shows how pure Jesus is, how sinless he is, that even a Pharisee wouldn't dare take that angle of assessment. It makes me think of, you know, even now, today, how many people have the audacity and the boldness to blaspheme and connect Jesus with 
immoral behavior with various women in the Bible. Not even a Pharisee would go to that length. He says he just didn't know. Ignorance. He'll put it down to that. Folks that make that kind of connection with Christ completely miss his holiness. They are far from understanding his divine nature. And they tread on dangerous ground. But the irony here is that this Pharisee who's questioning Jesus, he's not a real, this guy's not a real prophet, doesn't even know what everyone else knows. He's thinking this to himself. It's not allowed, is it? It's a private thought. But in verse 40, Jesus actually reads his mind, doesn't he? He reads his mind. And he says, let me tell you something, Simon. And he says, Simon says, say it, teacher. Now, Simon's not going to call him, say it, Lord, is he? He's not going to say, say it, prophet, because he doesn't think he's there. He at least, at best, equates him to himself, the same as himself. He's just a teacher. So he says, okay, say it, teacher. And Jesus tells him this parable. And he gives him an illustration to prepare the way for the truth that he's about to make to him, that is coming his way. Now, this is a really short parable, uh, a story that Jesus invents right there and then to give meaning to the point that he's making. A lender owes, is owed 500 denarii. That's about a year and a half's wages. So he's owed that by someone, and he's also owed 50 denarii, which is about uh, two and a half months, or a month and a half, actually, uh, wage by someone else. So he's owed some money, but neither can pay. None of them can pay. They're both bankrupt, okay? And what does the creditor do? Graciously cancels the debt of both. So the question is really simple. Who will show more love? Not who will show love, both will show love, but who will show more love to the lender, to the creditor? And in verse 43, we get Simon's response. I suppose, I suppose it would be the one that had the bigger debt cancelled. Now note that I suppose, it's, it's quite sarcastic. It's like rolling his eyes and saying, are you serious? The so-called prophet, this is the best that you can throw at me. You know, it's, it's, it's that attitude towards Christ of not giving him the due regard. But Jesus says, look, you've judged, judged rightly. Well done, Simon. You've passed reception. You're ready for year one now. Well done. Because he's about to hit him with the truth that is coming his way. And he, Simon affirms it. He confirms, well, based on your story, it is the one that has been forgiven the most. That would show the, more, the, you know, the most love. So there's agreement there. Okay, there's agreement there. Now let's look at it this way. If you hate banks, if you hate the financial institutions of this country, I don't know, and if you hate capitalism and all the endless loops you have to jump through to even get a mortgage, let's say finally one day you do get the mortgage. Okay? And then eventually you start falling behind. And your lender calls you up and says, you know, no, we've noticed that you've missed nine months now. And uh, we know that, you know, you can see that you're in a bind. What we'll do is we'll just cancel the whole thing and you get to stay in the house. Now, do you think that your attitude towards that lender before is going to be different afterwards or not? This is the sort of thing that's going on here. This is the lesson that he's trying to... Uh, uh, help us to understand. You're going to feel differently about your lender after that thing that they've done for you. They've cancelled your entire debt. Now, just because the debt has gone away for you, it doesn't mean that it's just disappeared into thin air, though. You know, the lender assumes the debt now. They've effectively bought a house for you, lent you money to do that, 
Now you can't pay, so they've canceled it and allowed you to stay in the house. So what they've done is they have exercised their right to not penalize you for defaulting. The debt didn't disappear. It's a deficit on their account, not on yours. Okay? So when we talk about forgiveness and debt relief and all that kind of thing, especially spiritual debt relief, when God forgives our sins, we think it's just gone somewhere. Nowhere, rather. It's just disappeared. Someone still pays. Someone still pays. What's happened for you is that you can go on living now without facing repercussions, but someone has paid it to allow that for, for you to happen. Allow that to happen for you. So, you know, where there is great forgiveness, there is great love in the heart of the forgiven towards the forgiver. Something immense has happened. And so, folks, when we look at this woman here, whose actions lead Jesus to publicly respond with this parable, I want to tell you that this woman is not here just to give Jesus the hospitality that Simon failed to give him. It's not just to go beyond that. You know, how was she supposed to know that when she turns up there, Jesus would have been in that house and had not have received the customs that he was due? That was not why she was there. She's turned up because something has happened to her before that night. Something immense has already happened in her life, and it's clearly to do with Jesus, and that's why she's there. She might have heard Jesus preaching when he was around that town. She might not. She might have heard someone else telling her of Jesus' message. But whatever it is, we're not told the specifics, it has hit her heart. It's impacted her life. It's changed her life radically. She's already regenerated. She's already changed. And so with the opportunity to see him at this house in her town, she wants to make her way there. And she comes with the most costly thing she has to give him thanks, gratitude, worship, and love. And that's why she's there. Every cultural custom that Simon failed to afford Jesus to wash his dirty feet upon entering his house, to greet him with a welcome kiss, to offer oil to spruce up his beard and hair before dinner. And this woman has provided over and above the call of duty, yes, in an extraordinary manner. Yes, on every point of Simon's failure there, she's gone beyond, not to show him up, not to prove herself anything or to change her reputation in the eyes of people. Because if anything, folks are just perplexed and dumbfounded by what they're seeing. It's for her Lord to worship and to show her deep love and appreciation. So extraordinary forgiveness leads to extraordinary love toward the forgiver. And this story is not just about this woman. She illustrates Jesus' method of salvation. That's what she's doing. That when you receive the gift of faith that's been placed in Jesus, he will forgive your debt. Your sins and the penalty for those sins, he will forgive them if you put your faith in him. And so from this, immense love pours out. Because ultimately, he loved you first, isn't it? And how do we know this in this passage? Well, Jesus contrasts, you know, he compares her actions with the lack of Simon's own actions uh, in, in verses 44. And, and, and he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins are forgiven. For she loved much. And she's already been forgiven. 
The NIV puts it like this. I, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. So she's not forgiven because of what she's done. Because she cleaned his feet, because she wiped her hair to, uh, to, to dry his feet. That, that, that's not why she was forgiven. That is salvation by works. Jesus doesn't help people who can pull up their own bootstraps. He helps and forgives the helpless sinner who has no chance of paying what they owe themselves. So this woman has already been forgiven. And Jesus says, you see this woman? Let me tell you, Simon, the great love she's showing me here now is evidence of the forgiveness that she has received. And she had many sins. This is the woman who's had the 500 denarii debt cancelled. The one who couldn't pay their mortgage and it's, ha- and, and, and it's erased for them. For them anyways. And she has this outpouring love for her creditor. Now what's the opposite side of Jesus' parable from the, the, the person who was forgiven the 500 debt? Well, the opposite was the person who was forgiven only 50 denarii, a smaller amount. They owed that amount couldn't pay it, small, but they couldn't pay it. They're still bankrupt, and it was still forgiven for them. Now, what does Jesus say about this kind of person, or this particular person? In verse 47, he who, has, who, he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, this is really important, because Jesus isn't saying that sometimes he uh, wipes away a little bit of your debt, leaving a little bit, so that, you know, you have to make it up yourself. And you go away with a little bit wiped off, but a little bit of resentment potentially in your heart. That's not what he's saying. Even if the amount owed is small, 100% of it is wiped away, cleaned. Your debt is erased for you if you trust and put your faith in him. I find it interesting how sometimes we might look at this passage and we might compare Simon, the Pharisee, to the one who's been forgiven little, Because it's about that contrast. Forgiven little shows little love. It's about, if you've been forgiven 50p, you will show love, right? Cheers, mate. I'll buy you a pint next time, or whatever it is. If you've been forgiven 50 million, you'll get Ed Ed Sheeran to come and sing a thank you song in the house of whoever it is. You will go the lengths. You will show a different degree of love, basically. Okay? But both have had their debts wiped And when we look at Simon, we say, he's the guy that had the small, that showed little love. Did he really show little love? Has he actually been forgiven even of a little bit of sin, a little debt? Is that true? Well, how do we know this? That I think that he is actually, hasn't been forgiven at all. Well, the focus of the story is the magnitude of the love and the thanksgiving that comes from the person who's had a lot forgiven. That's illustrated by the woman. So what does Simon illustrate? Let's have a look. Compared to this woman who was a former sinner now, does Simon just owe a little bit to God? Like, is his sin small in comparison to hers? I don't think so, because how can he be forgiven if he doesn't even know who Jesus is? Questions if he's even a prophet, never mind the Son of God. That's not insignificant. How can an age-old tradition afforded to all guests be completely denied to Jesus 
and not anyone else. He couldn't even get one of his servants to come and clean Jesus' feet. None of that. That's not a schoolboy error of forgetfulness. So I'll submit to you that Simon may still be in his sins, the worst of which is self-righteousness, which basically blinds a person from seeing that they themselves need to be forgiven. Now this woman is a testimony to Simon of what forgiveness is and what it produces. Jesus is evangelizing Simon here through and through. He's, Simon is seeing that he could have his sins forgiven if he too placed faith in Jesus. He could have his debts forgiven and also display such a love toward Jesus. And when you have faith in him, Jesus would do that. No matter if your debt is small or big. And in verse 48, Jesus isn't done. He affirms to the woman what has already happened to her. He declares, your sins are forgiven. And in 49, you read of people uttering some kind of disbelief, marveling, you know, and just, who is this man that he can even forgive sins? And it's not the people, the bystanders, those on the side, the everyday man. It is the people at the table. It's them. Who is this man? claims to forgive sins. It's the Pharisees, Simon's Pharisee friends. If the reception of a sinner at dinner is a problem, so Jesus received her to the table, that's a problem for them, then declaring forgiveness of her sins is even a bigger problem, isn't it? And throughout the Gospels, you'll read of how Pharisees were just incensed, just outraged every time they hear Jesus declaring forgiveness on someone and forgiving someone's sins. And Jesus here doesn't say, God forgives you to the woman. He didn't even say, I forgive you. But you know, they know, the Pharisees know, as we do, that he's claiming to do something that only God can do. Jesus here is displaying raw authority. There is no higher power for him to appeal to. And in stating this, Jesus, without any shadow of doubt, is equating himself with God. You can read through John chapter 10, which beautifully explains and gives us the passage where Jesus is talking about how he and God the Father are one. This is what offends them. And in verse 50, he says, Jesus says to the woman, Go, your faith has saved you. Further reassurance. And again, we're not talking about works salvation here, doing something to earn salvation. It's not as if she possesses a faith naturally that can, she can choose to use to place in Jesus or not and determine her own course of salvation. This is the kind of faith that we read of in Ephesians 2, the faith that comes as a gift and it's placed upon the Savior. And so Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that one may boast. So this event in the life of Jesus happens towards the end of his life, not long before he's actually killed uh, uh, and dies on the cross. He's going to give up his sinless life as a sacrifice for all those that place faith in him, and he's going to raise up again in power. His death and resurrection ratifies. It makes good. It seals the deal 
of the forgiveness that he declares upon sinners like this woman? Have you lived an awful, wicked life? A notorious one that you're known for? Or have been known for? Like the way this woman has been known for whatever she's done or whatever she does? Or do you've got, have you got secret sins that you keep to yourself that no one else knows about? Or do you see yourself that is doing all right, generally, and don't need forgiveness? I don't need to apply this parable for you, this story for you. It's plain to see. But, you know, the position that we are all in, or at least the position that we all start out as, is one of being in debt. You see, in Romans 8, 23, we all know this, this verse very well. Paul writes that uh, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The woman, Simon the Pharisee, his friends, the bystanders, you, me, we all have sins of different sizes, sins that have been committed or thought. There isn't one person who isn't in debt. We are the debtors in the parable, no matter which way you look at it. It's not whether you are in debt or not. It's just a question of what size debt do you owe? Because sin places you in debt to God. You know, we owe Him holiness. We owe Him glory. We owe Him praise. We owe Him perfection in thought and deed. And we can't give Him these things, naturally. We, we can't do it. We're born already holding the passport, the citizenship of sin. It's written into us. That hymn that we sang before, Adam's helpless race, that is this. That is how we start. Spiritually, we are bankrupt and unable to pay our debt like the debtors in this parable. Neither of them could pay. We cannot make good our end of the bargain on our own. And so we need a creditor to intervene if we're going to have debt relief. Throughout the Gospels, the Bible, and right here in Luke, you know, we're pushed to consider really one really important question. And that is, who is this man? Who can forgive sins? If he's not a prophet, if he's not the Christ, if he is not God in the flesh, then what else could he be? A lunatic then? A fraud? Because no one else can do and say these things that he has done and said. But the truth is overwhelmingly clear. It's unavoidable. This is he, the Christ, the Savior who forgives sins that we might be counted righteous by God. You know, the cost that we owe he takes upon himself. He pays it in his flesh. And by his blood, we can walk with God. He discerns the presence of faith and he pronounces forgiveness. So this woman, who has been forgiven much, she falls at the feet of her creditor, her savior. Her life has not only turned around, but the love produced in her towards her savior is immense. It's a beautiful picture of humble loving faith, one that is probably the most vibrant illustration in all of the Bible. Where in the story do you fit in? When it comes to a story like this, a narrative, you know, when you're reading through Paul in, the, in his letters, applications are very straightforward. Don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. When you're reading a narrative like that, sometimes you might think, how do I apply this to myself? Well, I'll urge you, look for yourself in the passage then. We're all represented there somewhere in one way or another. And I pray that as Christians, if you're a Christian, that your testimony resonates 
with that of this woman. That thanksgiving is directed to the person of her worship, which is Jesus Christ himself. That we have no shame in pouring out our most directed and heartfelt thanks to him and our love because he's forgiven us, hasn't he? That's now our standing as a Christian, as Christians. Now, if you hear this and you find affinity with Simon, on the other hand, let me say it's not enough just to pay lip service, to entertain religious debate, to tickle your intellectual curiosity. It's not enough, especially if it's for the purpose of trying to debunk Jesus, to try and defraud the Bible and say it's not true, it's full of contradictions, and to find something like that. Or to chalk him down as a distraction, or at best, maybe just an influential teacher. It's not enough. You have to wrestle with that question. Who is Jesus really? You know, what does he claim really? What does he offer? Where do you stand before God? And what can you really bring to the table on your own? You've got to wrestle with that. Jesus is evangelizing you if you're in that position. He's showing you like he's showing Simon that he is a God that seeks sinners because sinners don't seek him. Through faith in him, he will pronounce sinners clean before God and their sins forgiven because he can and he does forgive. Mild and extravagant sinners alike, he'll forgive both if we place our faith in him. Let me close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you seek out helpless sinners and are able to forgive them. Thank you for being a merciful creditor. And may your people fall at your feet and worship you, pour out love and worship you because it's you that showed us love first. May your word live and thrive within us and produce in us nothing but your own righteousness and holiness so that each day we may be more and more like you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.